So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the epistle of 1 John in the New Testament, or at the back. 1 John. This morning we will be in chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we come to your word, we just pray that you will show us wonderful things from your word. We commend ourselves to you. May you, Holy Spirit, oversee what is said. May it be edifying to our hearts. I pray this in the name of our precious, marvelous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the purpose of the epistle of John is to present tests by which someone's spiritual condition can be determined. In particular, particular, it's addressed to Christians who were disturbed by false teachers th throughout Asia Minor in different congregations. And John, as the pastor to them, writes this epistle that they may be assured that they have eternal life. And so John expresses his purpose of the epistle in chapter five and verse 13 when it states, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And he presents these tests in sort of cycles throughout the epistle. And in these cycles, he deals with three main subjects, uh, three main categories, right doctrine, right living, and right loving. In the first two chapters, he has dealt with these tests, mainly in relationship to our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other. Then from the beginning of chapter 3, John introduces the believer's marvelous reality of being children of God. We who know Christ savingly we who have been born of God have been adopted into God's family. And so here, the emphasis is 
since you are a child of God, that will manifest itself in how you believe and in how you behave. Now, there are people who claim to be Christians, but habitually practice sin, and people who say they're Christians, but if you look at their lives, it's just an unbroken pattern of sin. In our passage this morning, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, John deals with this subject, the subject of the practice of righteousness in the child of God. Here we also find a contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil and the practice of righteousness versus the practice of sin. This passage shows us that genuine faith in Jesus Christ and a habitual lifestyle of sin are incompatible. They're irreconcilable. For the person who professes to know Jesus Christ but who lives in a pattern of habitual ongoing sin where his life or her life is more characterized by sin than by righteousness, now that person does in fact not know Jesus Christ in a true saving relationship. That person has not been born of God regardless of what she or he claims. The Christian does not, the Christian cannot habitually and persistently sin. Now he will sin sometimes and he will sin willfully, but he will not sin habitually, persistently and relentlessly as a pattern of life. If you've been saved, born again, regenerated, made new, the direction of your life is toward God, not in rebellion of God. The direction of that person's life is toward holiness. Your mindset is set on the spirit. Your mind is set on the things above. In these verses before this morning, John identified specific ways that habitual sin is completely incompatible with a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ. A person can't say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. Yes, I know Jesus. I believe in him and I'm going to heaven and then live in an ongoing pattern of habitual sin. Live a life that's characterized by sin. First of all, we see that a life that is characterized by practicing sin is incompatible with God's law. Look at verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. In this verse, we see practicing sin is incompatible with God's law. John states that a universal truth here from which there's no escape, from which there is no exception. The gospel with its moral implications concerns all people, not just some, everyone is an universal statement that John makes here at the beginning. Everyone, there are no exceptions. In fact, six times in this section, John says, 
everyone who or no one who. In other words, these are implications of the gospel. Implications that are universally true. No one in this earth is excluded. There are no exceptions. You're not the exception. I'm not the exception. He says everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Now the two primary biblical definitions of sin are Greek words that describe one, the missing the mark, and another without righteousness. And, and those are common throughout, used commonly throughout the New Testament. But notice integral to both of these definitions is that sin is a transgression of the law. Sin is a transgression of the law. In this verse we're looking at, verse 4, John explicitly equates sin with an attitude of rebelliousness, an attitude of lawlessness, rebellion against God. Everyone who practices sin. But what the Greek text actually says is everyone doing sin. It has the sense of a continuous action in the present of the verb. In the present tense of this verse, the meaning is this is their consistent pattern, this is their characteristic practice, this is what marks their lives. Now those described here, those that are practicing lawlessness, are exactly the opposite of those described back in, in chapter 29, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 29 of 1 John, where he says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now the same sense of expression there is used but there it speaks of practicing righteousness and it speaks of those who have been born of him, those who have been redeemed, who have been born again. And notice that it says that everyone who has been born again also practices righteousness. The exact opposite of what we're looking at here in verse four. Practicing righteousness or doing righteousness is characteristic of those that are born of God. Believers sin, yes, they do, but they don't practice sin. It doesn't it characterize their lives as not the thing that marks most of their lives. It is not the continual dominant pattern of their lives. Believers, however, are not any longer marked by lawlessness. The truly penitent heart resolves to obey God's law and willingly submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. Those who have been born of God are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Listen to Romans chapter six and verses 16 through 19. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, 
you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Notice that the one born of God was a slave to lawlessness, but now has become a slave to righteousness. By contrast, everyone who habitually practices sin is living in an ongoing condition of lawlessness, which marks all who are outside of the kingdom of God, all those who have not been born of God. Verse 4 says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. To practice sin is to practice lawlessness. But what is lawlessness? Well, lawlessness is willful rejection and active disobedience to the will of God. It's a willful rejection. It's an active disobedience. It's not just a passive something that happens to the person but it's an active rebellion of the person towards God. Hence, anyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Lawlessness is a self-chosen disobedience that subverts man's uh, true relation to the will of God. It's a state of being. Lawlessness is a state of being. It's a state of being that rebels. It's rebelling against and not doing the law. Lawlessness is a mindset that is inherently antagonistic to God's law. So beyond just specific sins, the concept of lawlessness, it's an ongoing mindset of a person, antagonistic to God's law, and therefore produces lawless actions. So the sins, the actions, are the result of the lawlessness in the person. Thus, the defining characteristic of sin is lawlessness. It says sin is lawlessness. In the New Testament, there are other definitions of sin, like these, for example, in Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. And James 4:17, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And in the epistle of 1 John that we're looking at now in chapter 5 and, and verse 17 says all unrighteousness is sin. So there are the definitions of sin in the New Testament but this uh, one we're looking at here is the clearest and the most direct because John here says that sin, your sin, my sin, in its inherent nature is lawlessness. That means Sin is an active, intentional rebellion against God's known will. It's not just a weakness. It's not just a failure. It's not a simple missing of the mark. It's not an accidental deviation from the right path. It's an act of rebellion against God, the creator, the king and sovereign of the universe. So it's an active rebellion. Now, the reason that is so shocking is 
As human beings, we all have a tendency to excuse our sin. We do it in various ways. You know, some will excuse their sins as a weakness, or they'll say, well, yeah, it's okay, it's sin, but it's just a little sin. It's the minor little thing that didn't hurt anyone. Others will say, no, it's an inherited or trait or predisposition that I just can't help. I just can't help myself. This is how God made me or this is how I am. Or it's labeled as an addiction or an illness. And for many in our world today, sin does not exist. It's just a religious invention designed to exercise control over and to curtail the autonomy of and freedom of human beings. It's just a religious invention. But God says our sin is a defiant violation of his moral law. A defiant violation of his holiness. It's a refusal to live in obedience to his revealed standards of right and wrong. Sin is a deliberate deviation from, and it's a challenge to God's standard of right, a willful rebellion arising from the deliberate choice of the sinner. Sin is not an accident, it's not a weakness, it's an act of defiance against the one who has the right to tell us how to live. A commentator defines sin this way. To sin is to assent one's own will as the rule of action against the absolute good will of God. To assert one's own will is the rule of action against the absolute will of God. So sin is lawlessness. In other words, every person who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is considered lawless by God. God sees every human heart apart from the grace of the gospel as inherently lawless. That's what sin is. Romans chapter 1 and verse 32 states, though they know God's righteous decree, decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they, do, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They know the righteous decree of God, it says. Why? Because it's written on their heart. And even though they know the righteous decree and know that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they know that God's going to judge those who do these things. They not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. <clears throat> so the reason or sin is rebellion. <clears throat> it's rebellion because man is always rebelling against God's law, either the law written on the heart or the law written in scripture. Now, every person has the basic substance of God's law, and they're accountable. So sin is an act of rebellion against the revealed will of God. A real problem isn't how our sin affects us, although that's where we usually spend most of our time. I hate this sin in my life because of how it makes me feel, because of its consequences. 
because of how it messes up my relationships. That's not a real problem, our real problem. Our real problem is our relationship to God's law. We have broken God's law and we deserve God's punishment. And we have another problem. A holy God says, to be in my presence, you have to be righteous. You have to keep my law. You have to be every bit the kind of person I demand. You have to love me perfectly and you have to love others as you love yourself. And we've done exactly the opposite. We've broken God's law. That's why we need the gospel. Because the gospel answers both of these problems. Jesus died for me, suffering the punishment that I deserve for breaking God's law. And Jesus lived for me as a substitute and throughout his incarnation, he perfectly kept God's law so that it could be credited to my account. And he died on the cross for me so that God could accept me. That's the gospel. Second Corinthians 5:21 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. At the cross of Calvary, God treated us as if he had lived my life so that God could credit Jesus' perfect life of righteousness to me and treat me forever as I had lived that life. That's the gospel. Back to our text in chapter four, chapter three of John. And John's point in verse four is that true believers don't live in habitual pattern of ongoing unrepentant sin because it's completely incompatible with God's law, which Christ loved and kept and which he's now given us a love for and has enabled us to keep his law. Another reason here is that a life of habitual sin is incompatible with a true saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So we see that a life of continual sin or habitual sin is incompatible with the work of Christ, incompatible with Christ's work. Verse five states, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. See, the primary reason for Jesus coming to earth was in order to take away sins. Therefore, it's absolutely inconsistent with Jesus Christ's redeeming work on the cross for anyone who claims to be a Christian to continue to sin. For a Christian to be in habitual sin is this inconsistent with Christ's work. To do so ignores the reality of the sanctifying element of salvation. We have been saved, we have been justified, but we have been sanctified and are being sanctified progressively through our lives. This element of sanctification sets believers apart from sin to righteousness 
we are set apart from sin to righteousness. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. This verse starts with, you know. John appeals many times to the knowledge believers possess and urges them to conform their lives to this knowledge. Verse 5 begins, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. John here urges us to conform our lives to this knowledge that we have, not live contrary to that knowledge. In this case, the knowledge to which he refers concerns not the nature of sin itself, but the truth about Christ's person and his work. He says, you know, but you know what? You know that he appeared, he says. This is the same Greek word that John used back in chapter 2 and verse 28, when he says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And also in chapter 3 and verse 2, when he says, we know then when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. In both of these verses, he's referring to the second coming of Christ, that he will appear. But in verse 5 of our passage, when he says he appeared, he's referring back to Christ's first coming to Christ's incarnation. There's a theological implication that John is making here with that word appeared. You see, normally we don't say of someone when they are born that he or she appeared. The implication of that word here is that Jesus existed before his birth as the eternal son of God and he appeared says, you know that he appeared in order that to take away sins. For this reason, for this purpose, he appeared. Christ came into the world in his incarnation. He lived a perfect, sinless life and went to the cross in order to take away sins. Here, John doesn't use the singular word sin, but plural sins differently than before, meaning all of the individual sins of those who truly believe on him. He appeared, he came in his incarnation to take away, to carry off, to carry away those sins. John, uh, the, the Gospel of John chapter 1 and verse 29, there John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The picture there is of the Day of Atonement, when you remember that on that special day each year, the nation of Israel, when the sins of the people were to be atoned for. The high priest would take two goats. One of the goats was to be offered as a sacrifice. The other goat, the priest, was to put his hands on the head of that goat and confess over it the sins of the people. And then they took that goat out into the wilderness to die outside of the camp. You see, those two goats picture the fullness of what Jesus did 
in his death for us. On the one hand, he died as a sacrifice, paying the penalty of sin. On the other hand, he took the guilt of our sin and he took it outside the camp, away from us and separated it as far from us as the east is from the west. Jesus appeared with that purpose. To take away our sins. By bearing the guilt of each of our sins in his own body on the cross. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. First Peter, in chapter 2, verse 24, states, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. In this verse, in which he refers to Isaiah 53, the Apostle Peter states clearly the purpose of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. So that, with the purpose that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Therefore, for a professing believer to live in habitual, ongoing, unrepentant sin is completely incompatible with Jesus' saving purpose and work. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 states, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to take away sin. Salvation is transforming, and the new birth produces a new life in which the power of sin has been broken we are no longer under the power of sin. And the result is a life that renounces ungodliness and lives a godly life. And having been redeemed from all lawlessness, we are zealous for good works. Jesus came to take away sins. So as a person says, yes, I am a Christian, but continues to live a life marked by sin, it shows that that person does not know why Jesus came does not know what was Christ's work. It's absolutely incompatible with knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. There's a third way that habitual sin is, is inconsistent with knowing Jesus. See, it's incompatible with Christ's nature. Habitual sin is incompatible with Christ's nature. Look at the second half of verse 5. In him there is no sin. He came to take away our sins, but he had no sin. 
Here John changes from talking about Jesus taking away our sins in the plural to Jesus having no sin in the singular. When scripture speaks about Jesus and his relationship to sin, it consistently makes two points. The first is Jesus has never committed sin. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. As he lived on earth, he didn't commit any sins. Hebrews 1, 9 states, talking about Christ, says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Hebrews 7, 26, our high priest is holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. So just Jesus has never committed sin. He lived 33 years on earth and he never committed a single sin. But there's another point that scripture makes about Jesus, and that is Jesus never had a sin nature. And that's the primary point John is making here. It's true that he never committed sin, but here he's making a larger point. Notice the form of this statement is timeless. He uses the verb is for the sinlessness of Christ does not belong only to his preexistence or the days of his flesh or to his present heavenly condition, but to his essential and eternal nature. Jesus always has been and is and always will be without sin. He eternally exists completely without sin, but not only without any acts of sin, but without a sinful nature. Now again, John's point is this, you cannot be a genuine believer and live in a continual pattern of sin, because to do so is completely incompatible with the very nature of the one you say is your Savior and Lord. It's completely incompatible with the nature of the one you say you believe and follow. In verse six, then John goes on and states, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or known knows him. In this verse, John affirms that no one who abides in Christ, meaning no one who is genuinely, who is truly a Christian, keeps on sinning habitually. The key here is the present tense of the verb. It expresses an ongoing sinful style. John has already affirmed the possibility that a Christian can sin. That's not his point here. He's affirmed that in, in previous chapter. He doesn't refer to an occasional specific act of sin, but rather a lifestyle of sin as the tense of the verbs indicates. Such a lifestyle indicates someone who has neither seen nor known Jesus, says. In verse six, we see another way in which a continual pattern of sin is incompatible with knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. And that is living in this way in habitual sin is incompatible with abiding in Christ. It's incompatible with abiding in Christ. Look at verse six, no one who abides in him sins. Now to abide in him is to abide in Jesus Christ. This is not some mystical 
privileged experience. And this isn't something that's only true for a few really special Christians. Every true Christian abides in Christ. Abide means to remain, to remain in Christ. It's a metaphor which presents the believer's vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In this word picture, the union between the Lord Jesus Christ and true believers is as vital as that of a branch and a vine. You see, the branch depends entirely on the vine for its life, for its sustenance, for its growth, for its fruit. In the same manner, the believer depends completely on the Lord Jesus Christ as the source of spiritual life, and believers cannot bear spiritual fruit apart from the life-giving union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So every true believer abides in Christ. And so John says, no one who abides in him sins. No one, there is no exception here, no one who abides in him, that is, no one who remains in Christ. A true believer sins, literally is sinning or is continuing to sin or practices sin, the logical deduction then follows, and it's this. If the eternal nature of the Son of God is sinless, and if the purposes of his historical appearing, of his coming to earth, was to remove the sins of those who believe in him, then no one who lives in him, who abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who truly abides in him practices sin. That is, as an ongoing pattern of life. 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 states, By this we know that we are in him, or abiding in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And just a few verses earlier, John identified Christ Jesus as Christ the righteous one. And verse 29, verse uh, chapter two states, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Therefore, if you profess to be a Christian and abide in him, you ought to walk as Christ walked. And how is that? He walked in righteousness. So you ought to walk in righteousness. So it's evident that John in this verse is not talking about sinless perfection because he has already stated back in chapter one and in verse eight, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we made him a liar and his word is not in us. So in the context of this passage and of the epistle, he's referring to practicing sin as a continual pattern of life. And then verse six goes on, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Here we have a contrast between the one who abides in Christ and the one who does not know Christ. No one, again, no exception, without exception, no one is sinning, that is an ongoing continual way of sinning. No one is characterized by practicing sin as the governing principle of their lives who has seen him, oh, who knows him. So the person that is characterized by this has not seen him, does not know him. He has not seen him as 
he is revealed in scripture. He has not known him as his savior. John wrote this paragraph to confront the Gnostic false teaching of the first century. See, the Gnostics argued that you could engage in all kinds of sin and still be in communion with God. Sadly, there are contemporary versions of this idea that knowing the gospel and professing to believe in Jesus are all that matters and it doesn't really matter how you believe. One of them is in decisionism or easy believism. This is the idea that you, if you ever said a prayer or you made a decision at some point in your life, then you're a Christian from that time on forward. And it doesn't really matter how you live. John says, if your life is characterized by sin, you never were converted, you never were saved. Another teaching contradicting what John says here is what's called free grace or anti-lordship. It teaches that faith doesn't mean that you acknowledge Jesus' lordship over your life. In fact, at any point in your life, you mentally affirm, if you mentally affirm the gospel to be true, then you're a true Christian regardless of how you live. So this passage that we have before us this morning helps us to examine ourselves as we are encouraged to do by Paul. Have you really seen and known the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel in scripture? Have you truly come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? If so, John says, you're not living in a habitual characteristic pattern of sin in your life. No one abiding in Christ and the biblical gospel keeps on continually practicing sin. But if you say, I do sin, but I can see the change in my life, I love the law of God, I love obedience, I seek to obey, and as I look back over time, I'm not where I, I want to be, but by God's grace, I'm not where I used to be. And you can see a decreasing pattern of sin in my life and can see an increasing pattern of righteousness, and that's what I want more than anything else. I want to be like Jesus Christ then understand you've passed the test that John is presenting here this morning. Now in this passage of John, there's much more, and, but that we'll have to wait for next time. So as we consider these truths this morning, let's examine ourselves before the Lord. Is our profession, measure it with our behavior, with our lives, if now we come to the Lord, we confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we are called to live in righteousness, not in sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we just pray that this morning, as we've looked at this passage, your Holy Spirit will print this in our hearts, that we may come before you in attitude of examining ourselves before you and confessing our sin and seek to live a life of righteousness as you have called us to do, knowing, Lord, that we can't do in our own effort, but only through the Holy Spirit working your word in our lives.
We pray that we may do this in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.